Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 210, The Scourge of the Gods, part 1. So, I survived camping in the woods with all my ninth graders, and today we're going to change tack about a group just as savage as your average ninth grader, but with slightly better personal hygiene. As an aside, I did pick up a wonderful new cold from one of the ninth graders over the trip, so if I sound a little congested or stranger than usual, that's why. But that's not really worth dwelling on, because this week we're going to start another short series on something that quite a few of you have asked for, and one that I would be remiss not to deliver because it's a damn good story and a damn important one. It begins in the kind of place you wouldn't imagine an important story would, in 1162, on the wide-open steppes of Mongolia. There, a son was born to the head of the ruling clan of the Mongols, a warrior named Yesuge. That boy was known at birth as Temujin, though that's not the name that would make him famous. Young Temujin would be tried in a series of conflicts that would consume most of his life. He would murder one of his own brothers for stealing from him, and would be cursed by his own mother for it. He would see his wife, a beautiful and wise woman named Borte, captured by his rivals, and would go above and beyond to rescue her. He would swear an oath of blood brothership with his closest friend, Jamucha, and would then see their friendship rent asunder as neither man was prepared to be second to the other. Temujin ultimately executed his old friend. Ultimately, Temujin would do something never before done, unite the warring clans of the Mongols and join them together in a new alliance under his leadership and in doing so he would take a new title as well, Chinggis Khan, or to use the heavily anglicized version, Genghis Khan. The rise of Genghis Khan is a story in its own right. It has everything, drama, funny moments, love, profound lessons about power and friendship and all that good stuff, but it's really only the beginning of our story. You see, Genghis Khan is often credited with helping to forge the modern world, how much credit he intentionally deserves for doing that is open to some debate. Far better scholars of Mongol history than I suggest that the true goal of one of history's greatest conquerors was security against the traditional enemies of Mongolia, more so than forging a new world order or a universal empire or anything like that. Yet in obtaining that security, Temujin did do something incredible. He did build a sprawling and powerful empire. Now that was impressive, but not unprecedented. China's ancient Han dynasty had been locked in conflict with a steppe tribe called the Xiongnu, ancestors of the Mongols. The Tang dynasty, too, had fought against Tibetans, Uyghurs, and others. And during Genghis Khan's own age, China's ruling dynasty, the Song, had lost the northern half of China to steppe tribes related to the Mongols. First the Khitans, and then the Jurchens. Yet Temujin took it a step further and laid out a strategy for conquering all of China. He would not live to see it completed. He would die in 1227 on campaign against a peripheral kingdom of China called Xixia. It would not be until the reign of his grandson Hubla, or Kublai, that the conquest would be complete. Yet even beyond the conquest of China, the Mongols built an empire across all of Asia. One by one, both Genghis and his successors trampled great empires before them. 
the Khwarezmians of Persia, the Abbasids of Arabia and Mesopotamia, the principalities of Rus, and others all fell before the might of the Mongols. The purpose of this growing empire shifted profoundly under the second Khan, Genghis Khan's son, Ogede. Where Genghis had built his empire defensively, his son Ogede embraced a new vision. Ogede embraced an idea of universal empire, that the success of the Mongols showed that they had been blessed by Tengur, the supreme god of the wide-open blue sky. Tengur's blessing meant that the Mongols were fated to conquer everything under his gaze. Everything covered by the sky, so everything. In practical terms, perhaps this didn't change very much. The Mongols kept expanding, the empire kept growing, and the legend of Mongol invincibility grew as well. But in ideological terms, this changed everything. The Mongol conquests were no longer political wars motivated by geopolitical concerns, but religious ones, a desire to impose a new order on the world. This attitude, for example, is evident in a letter written in response to the missives of Pope Innocent IV, who had written to the Mongol Khan asking for an end to the invasions of Europe and for the Mongols to convert to Catholicism. The response came from Guyuk Khan, Ogedai's son, Genghis's grandson, and the third Khan of the Mongols. It reads, quote, You have sent the following message. You have conquered all the lands of the Hungarians and other Christians. This seems strange to me. Tell me what was their crime, and I have not understood this message of yours. Chinggis Khan and the great Khan Ogedai have both transmitted the order of the Eternal God that the world should be subordinated to the Mongols to be taken note of. But they, the Hungarians, disregarded God's order to such an extent that those mentioned by you even held a great council, and they behaved arrogantly in refusing, and they killed our messengers and envoys. Thus the eternal God himself has killed and exterminated the people in those countries. How could anybody, without God's order, merely from his own strength, kill and plunder? And when you go on to say, I am a Christian, I honor God, how do you think you know whom God will absolve, and in whose favor he will exercise his mercy? How do you think you know that you dare to express such an opinion? Through the power of God, all the empires from the rising of the sun to its setting have been given to us, and we own them. How could anyone achieve anything except by God's order? Now, however, you must say with a sincere heart, We shall be obedient, we too make our strength available. You personally, at the head of the kings, you shall come, one and all, to submit to me and serve me. Then we shall take note of your submission. If, however, you do not accept God's order and act against our command, we shall know that you are our enemies." End quote. Now, unfortunately for Guyuk and Ogede before him, the Mongol Khans did have two weaknesses. One is practically a tradition for great conquerors, drink. Ogede died due to complications arising from alcoholism. Guyuk was naturally unhealthy, and the threat of war against his uncle Batu pushed him over the edge, though the exact cause of death is debated. The other was the threat of internal disunity. The imperative of Mongol unity was so crucial to the fate of the Mongolian Empire that it was immortalized in The Secret History of the Mongols, a document written during the reign of Ogede which describes the rise of Genghis Khan. The secret history describes Alan Gua, a famous female ancestor of Genghis Khan, 
who instructed her children on the importance of loyalty with a bundle of arrows. First, she gave them each individual arrows and asked them to snap the arrows in two, and they did so easily. Then she handed them a bundle of arrows and asked them to break them, and they could not, no matter how hard they tried. The lesson, said Alon, was that if they stuck together, then like the arrows, nobody could break them. But if they split up, they would be vulnerable as those individual arrows. Genghis and his children knew that lesson well, but their descendants began to forget it. By the time of Guyuk Khan's ascension in 1246, the various descendants of Genghis were beginning to turn on each other. By 1260, outright war between Mongol claimants to the throne of the Great Khan began. Before long, the Great Mongol Empire dissolved into its component pieces, each claimed by a different branch of Genghis Khan's descendants who could trace their lineage back to one of his children. But why does this rapid rise in the beginnings of the fall of the Mongol Empire even concern us? Have we stealth-morphed into the History of Mongolia podcast when nobody was looking? Well, no, dear listeners, though a History of Mongolia podcast would be awesome, and if anyone out there has the expertise, by all means do it. But this is still the History of Japan podcast. But Japanese history, as we've said again and again, is world history, and this is no exception. For you see, while the great and unified empire of Genghis and Ogedei was not long for this world, that vision of a world united under Mongol rule did not die with its creators. It remained a powerful compulsion in their successors. And Japan, of course, is a part of the world. I want to spend the rest of this episode on two questions. Who inherited this Mongol legacy, and what inspired them to try and add Japan to the Yasa? To the empire ruled by the laws of Genghis Khan. Second, who confronted that challenge on the Japanese side? So on the Mongol side, the man responsible more than any other for deciding that the Mongols should rule Japan was Khubla Khan, a grandson of Genghis by way of Genghis's fourth son, Tolui, though we know him better as Kublai Khan. Kublai is interesting not only for his role in Japanese history, but as a man in his own right, because he encapsulated one of the biggest changes in Mongol history. Genghis, remember, was born on the wide, open, undeveloped, and rather poor Mongolian steppe. So were his children, including Tolui. By the time of Kublai's birth, however, things had changed. He, too, was born on the steppe in 1215, but that step looked very different from what it had been. Conquest had brought great wealth to the region, concentrated in a fixed Mongol capital at Karakorum, where the splendor of the empire was at full display. This new empire was also a multi-ethnic one in a way that it had not been before. Kublai's wet nurse was not a Mongol, but a Tangut, from a mixed Tibetan-Burmese people who had migrated to northwest China a few centuries back. Probably the biggest influence on Kublai were his tutors, who were overwhelmingly Chinese, not Mongols. Rather fatefully, after conquering the northern Chinese Jin dynasty, Genghis and Ogedei had decided to retain the Chinese-deriven system of administration that had been the hallmark of Chinese empires for a thousand years, since the reign of the first emperor of Qin. The Mongols used this system to govern the settled Chinese they conquered, 
as they adapted existing government structures in other areas of the empire to the realities of Mongol rule. And they used it to extract taxes to support Mongol overlordship. However, this decision to maintain the Chinese system had an unintended side effect. One of the major themes of Chinese history has always been the assimilation of Chinese culture by peripheral peoples, including, for example, the Japanese. That was true even of nomadic peoples who conquered parts of China. The Xianbei, the Khitans, the Jurchens. These were all nomadic predecessors of the Mongols, who you don't really hear about anymore, because most of them conquered a part of China and then were culturally assimilated by the very people they claimed overlordship of. In a sense, Kublai was representative of the beginning of that same process for the Mongols. He grew up with Chinese tutors, learning Chinese history, reading the texts of Neo-Confucianism, and just generally submersing himself in the elite culture of Asia's wealthiest and proudest civilization. Yet Kublai and his predecessors were conscious of the danger of assimilation. Mongol supremacy was rooted in their military ability, which was in turn rooted in Mongol culture, in the fact that Mongols spent a tremendous amount of time in the saddle, moving about the grasslands of the steppe in large coordinated groups at a quick pace while supporting themselves via hunting and foraging. All of those skills have tremendous military value. Becoming culturally Chinese, living in a city, reading Confucius and poetry all day, would mean losing that heritage and potentially losing the empire as well. Genghis Khan and his successors thus devised a sort of rotation system where Mongols spent part of their time among the settled peoples of their conquered empire and part of their time on the steppe, honing the abilities that had won them that empire. Yet it would be hard to deny that the lifestyle presented by settled Chinese people was far more attractive than a hard life on the steppes. Kublai himself supposedly kept a patch of steppe grass in his beautifully appointed Chinese garden to remind himself where he came from. Kublai was raised alongside his elder brother Monke, who would eventually become the fourth Khan of the Mongols after the death of Guyuk. Kublai got his start governing Hebei in northern China, which had been gifted in perpetuity to Genghis Khan's son Tolui and his descendants. Early on, Kublai distinguished himself in two ways. First, he proved an able administrator. Kublai was careful to surround himself with strong advisors, including Chinese scholars like Xu Hung and Liu Bencheng, Tibetan Buddhist masters like Drogon Chogyal Pagpa, other Mongols, and even his talented and fascinating wife, the Mongol princess Chabi. Between their skills and his own natural intelligence, Kublai proved to be a wise and talented leader. Second, Kublai proved to be a rather skilled warrior. In 1258, he was tasked with an assault on the city of Wuhan by his elder brother Monkey. But before he could assemble his forces, word came that Monkey had died, which normally would necessitate an end to all military campaigns, as the Mongols withdrew to elect a new great Khan. Kublai, however, hid news of his brother's death and continued the assault on Wuhan. He was ultimately unable to take the city, but he did force the Chinese Song Dynasty into a truce, which included hefty cash payments by the Chinese into the Mongol treasury. 
Monkey's death also opened up a new basket of problems for Kublai. The Mongols did not engage in hereditary monarchy. The great Khan of the Mongols was elected in a massive gathering called a Kurultai, though the person chosen had to be of Borjigin descent. That meant they had to be a descendant of one of Genghis Khan's legitimate Mongol children, and only those of a certain rank within the empire could vote. When the Kurultai to elect Mongki's successor was assembled in 1260, two candidates arose as natural successors, both sons of Tolui, Kublai himself and his youngest brother, Arik Boke. The Mongol princes, however, were deeply divided. Those who supported Kublai embraced his vision that there was something to be learned from settled Chinese civilization. They embraced, for example, Kublai's use of Chinese advisors and a Chinese administrative system within his territories. However, others were concerned that the Mongols were moving too far from their own heritage. They were losing their Mongolness, the characteristic that had allowed them to seize the empire in the first place. Those who felt this way gravitated to Ark Bokeh. The Kurultai, unable to agree, split in two. One group elected Arik, the other Kublai. The Empire had two Khans, but of course, like the Highlander, there can be only one, and thus there was civil war between the sons of the House of Tolui. Short version, Kublai eventually won and imprisoned, but did not execute Arik Bokeh. In short, Kublai was on the one hand a very even-tempered and open-handed man. He invited those outside the Mongols themselves to have a hand in governing the Empire, and made a point to recognize excellence wherever he could find it. And, of course, when he could have killed his younger brother for rebelling against him, he did not. But, on the other hand, he could be quite ruthless. He was, after all, willing to fight a war against his brother in order to hang on to the power that one of the Kurultais had handed him, and flat-out ignored Mongol tradition by refusing to call off the Wuhan campaign upon the death of Monkey. So that's Kublai in a nutshell. What about his opposite number? Well, Japan in the 13th century was at the beginning of warrior rule under the Minamoto shogunate, despite the fact that there was no Minamoto shogun. It's been a while, so let's refresh ourselves. In the 1180s, as Genghis Khan was beginning the series of crazy adventures that made him into the man he was, Japan's imperial government had lapsed into complete ineffectiveness. Instead, regional warriors had risen to political prominence and come to dominate the vestigial Kyoto court. The 1180s saw the latest in a series of wars between two of the most prestigious warrior families and their allies, the Minamoto and the Taira, that ended with the crushing defeat of the Taira and the near-total eradication of that family. Led by the skilled politician, though not-so-skilled general, Minamoto no Yoritomo, and by his more militarily capable brother, Yoshitsune, the Minamoto clan became the dominant force in Japanese politics. However, Minamoto no Yoritomo's intense sense of jealousy led him to kill his own brother in 1192. When Yoritomo himself later died, his sons proved unequal to the task of ruling in their own right. Instead, power was split between Hojo Masako, Yoritomo's widow, and Hojo Tokimasa, Yoritomo's father-in-law. Short version, 
Masako eventually won out, forcing her father out of power in 1205. She also directed the crushing of an abortive attempt by the reigning emperor to take back a degree of political power during the Jokyu War of 1221, and helped defeat a political coup by a group of Minamoto relatives, the Miura clan, in 1224. During this whole time, as Hojo Masako was cementing her power, Japan did still have a shogun. The last Minamoto shogun, Minamoto no Sanetomo, was assassinated in 1219, possibly at the instigation of his own mother, Hojo Masako, who wanted to get rid of her husband's family line to solidify her own power. Sanetomo was replaced with a distant relative, a boy from the Fujiwara family descended from a niece of Minamoto no Yoritomo. However, nobody cares about that kid, or the five shoguns who came after him, because they were irrelevant figureheads. Actual power devolved to the position of Shikken, or regent, for the Hojo family, who exercised the authority of the shogun in the shogun's name. This created what is, in my opinion, the most ludicrously convoluted system of government that I have ever encountered in all of my days studying history. If you're keeping track, Japan's government now works as follows. The emperor has a divine right to rule, but no actual authority. That authority is instead invested in a courtly regent from the Kyoto aristocracy, the Kanpaku. However, by the 1180s, the power of the Kanpaku has been marginalized. His authority is delegated to the shogun, who commanded the samurai, and thus effectively runs the country, in the name of the Kanpaku in the name of the emperor and who is in theory appointed by the Kampaku in the Emperor's name, though in fact that's really just a rubber stamp for a pre-picked candidate. That Shogun, however, has no actual authority. Instead, it is all delegated to a Shiken from the Hojo family, who actually calls all the shots in the Shogun's name who is calling them in the Kampaku's name who is calling them in the Emperor's name. Confused yet? Don't worry, you're not alone. Now, perhaps you're wondering why the Hojo didn't just say the hell with it and clean this up a little bit by claiming the title of Shogun for themselves. Well, only members of specific bloodlines can claim that title. Specifically, you have to be able to prove descent from one of the great Kuge families of the Imperial period, the courtly aristocrats who dominated late Heian Japan, the Fujiwara, Minamoto, Taira, and Tachibana families. The Hojo could not, and that fact was too well known for them to do what future claimants to the title of Shogun would do, like Tokugawa Ieyasu, just make up a fake family tree. But hey, even if it's very indirect power, it's still power. That's a pretty solid deal. By the time Kublai Khan rose to power on mainland China, the man wielding power in the Emperor's name and the name of the Kanpaku and the Shogun was Hojo Tokimune. Tokimune was the 8th Hojo Shikken. His father, Tokiyori, is actually fairly well regarded by Japanese historians. He was a reform-minded ruler who supposedly put on a disguise at night to go out among his people and get a feel for conditions on the ground himself, without the filter of his vassals. Among other things, he's credited with improving the functionality of the legal system by which members of the samurai class could settle their disputes, and with being a prominent patron of Zen Buddhism. In particular, he was inspired by the Zen teachings of Dogen, the founder of the Soto sect of Zen in Japan. 
Tokiyori even personally funded construction of a large Zen temple in his base of power in Kamakura, to the south of modern Tokyo, called Kenchoji. As the Mongols swept through China, Tokiyori offered safe haven to Buddhist practitioners. By 1256, however, Tokiyori's health began to fail him. As a result, he retired from the post of Shiken. However, his son Tokimune was five years old, not really in a position to rule as a regent or anything else. So instead, Tokiyori divided up his responsibilities. His son would take over as Tokso, a title held by the head of the Hojo family. He was, in essence, the official man of the house. However, the five-year-old Tokimune would not take the title of Shiken, or the attendant responsibility to wield power in the shogun's name. Instead, that would be passed off on some other Hojo relatives until Tokimune came of age. In the meantime, young Tokimune would be groomed for power by a series of instructors and advisors. Chief among them would actually be Buddhist priests. Tokimune grew up to be a devout Zen believer. By 1268, at the age of 17, Tokimune was considered ready to assume his full responsibilities and became the eighth Shiken of the Hojo family. He would not have to wait long for his first major challenge as a ruler. The same month he assumed the title of Shiken, the first group of envoys arrived in Kyushu from mainland China with a message from the then 53-year-old Kublai Khan. That message invited the Hojo to submit to Mongol rule. What he did with it, and the result, we'll get to next week. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to Sachie Sakurai, Will Moore, Michael Rigney, and Phil Smith for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out our new webpage at isaacmeyer.net I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for Scourge of the Gods Part 2.